Have you ever believed something that after you learned about it, it wasn't, you found out that it wasn't true? Maybe you believed it and, you know, it was kind of devastating when you uh, found the facts and you realized that what you'd been hearing all your life wasn't exactly the truth. And who hasn't been fooled by at least uh, some of the myths that we see or hear in our lives? You know, when we're growing up, you hear that, uh, you know, you keep crossing your eyes like that and they're going to freeze. Or you keep that frown on your face and your face is going to freeze like that. Or that ostriches go and they, when something goes wrong, they hide their head in the ground. Or the blood in your body is actually blue until you cut yourself and it touches oxygen and then it turns red. Or what about swallowing your gum? It remains in your system for years. All of us have been have heard those things, and maybe we've even stated those things. You know, like eat your onions; they'll put hair on your chest. And we accept those things as facts, but none of us, or we come to realize that none of those things were true. They were all missed. And what I want to talk about this morning is that there are myths. I believe that people think are true concerning the Bible. Myths concerning things that people uh, say are found in the Bible. For instance, how many of us have heard the old saying, spare the rod and spoil the child? It's in the Bible. Well, you're not going to find that verse in the Bible because that phrase is not in the Bible. Or the Lord works in mysterious ways. The Bible tells us that. Well, there's not an exact Scripture that says that, but I know that we can look at the Lord and we can see and, and how He's acted in certain ways that it may be mysterious to us, but there's not a verse of Scripture that actually says that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And I'm sure that when you look at the birth of Jesus, you can see a lot of myths that are not true. For one, when you look at the manger scene, you see the shepherds there and you see the wise men there. But when you look at the Scripture, they weren't all there on that occasion. And so you can look at different things that people believe because they've heard it over and over that they have come to the conclusion that they're true. And sometimes when we look at the, what the Bible says, it comes as a shock to us to realize that, guess what? What I've been hearing and what I've been taught all my life is not true, and so I wanted to look at some of those things this morning. I really wanted to name this sermon uh, Mythbusters, but you know, somebody else already has that out there. But we want to bust some myths today about what the Bible teaches, uh, or what people claim that the Bible teaches, and hopefully it will help us to defend the truth. And if we are not, and if we don't know what the Bible teaches, it'll help us come to the understanding of what God's Word actually says. I hope you have your Bibles because I want you to follow along with me this morning. We're going to look at several different passages of Scripture, but if you would turn with me over to Acts chapter nine, because the first myth that I want to talk about is. People say that you don't have to be baptized. You don't need to be baptized. It's not necessary in order to be saved. Well, what does the Bible actually say? What does the Bible teach us about that subject? Is what you're hearing a myth? In other words, false teaching? Or is what the Bible says something different than what you've heard? 
Well, let's examine, is baptism necessary for our salvation? Do we need it in order to be in the right relationship with God? In Acts chapter 9, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. In Acts chapter 9, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. When it's talking about this way, it's talking about those that are following Christianity, those that are Christians, those that are obedient to the gospel of Christ. And then it goes on in verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And so here we see that Saul is on the road to Damascus. And there are many people that want to teach that on this road is where Saul was saved. Because he saw the light and he heard the voice of Jesus. But notice what it says there in that verse. You'll be told to go to the city and there you will be told what you must do. Well, yes, he's a chosen vessel. God had picked him, but he still had a choice in the matter. It was just like Jonah when God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh and teach. What did Jonah do? He got on a ship and went the other way. Saul had that same opportunity. And the question is, was he saved at this particular point? Well, if you drop down, well, you can read the rest of the verses. Uh, beginning in verse 7, you can see that Saul was led into the city, and there he came in contact with Ananias. Because Ananias was told to go to Saul. And then down in Acts chapter 9 and verse 18, where that story is being told about Saul's conversion, it says that Ananias went into him and he laid his hands on him. And then in verse 18 it says, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received, or received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. If he was already saved, why did he need to be baptized? Because the Bible teaches us what baptism does. And Saul even tells us in his own words when his name's Paul, his name's changed later. Turn over to Acts chapter 22. Because in Acts chapter 22, in Paul's own words, he's telling what happened on that particular occasion. And so in Acts chapter 22, beginning of verse 14, it says, And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee that thou shouldest know his will, and to see that just one, and shouldest heard the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now what does Saul say took place? That when he went to the city, and there he waited, he was there three days, and he prayed. Now if prayer took away sin, why was he still in his sin? Why did he need to have his sins washed away? He was told to go there, and he would be told what he must do. And so when Ananias came to Saul, what did he say? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, 
calling on the name of the Lord. Remember that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, because we're going to see it again here in a moment. But he needed to be baptized. And we can see other passages of Scripture that teach us that. We know that Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What, did he need? what do we need to believe? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. That He died for our sins. That He was buried. And that He rose victorious over the grave. We need to believe that He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That He came to take away our sins. And we need to understand what is needed for us to have our sins washed away by that precious blood that was shed on the cross. But people will say baptism is essential because they can point out verses where it says just believe. Well, we can also point out verses that tell us that we need to be baptized. For in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, what does it say? The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in that passage of the Scripture, we see that baptism does save. And so we go down into that watery grave of baptism, just like we see the picture is painted in Romans chapter 6, where we go down into that water and we come up out of that water a new creature. And it represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of sin, uh, 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 of Christ. Because our old man of sin goes down into that water, and when we come up out of that water, we rise to walk in newness of life. Why? Because we're a new creature in Christ. We were dead in sin, and now we've been made alive through our obedience to the Gospel. So is baptism essential? Jesus said it was. Peter said it was. And Paul comes to the understanding that yes, it was when Ananias told him, why tarriest thou arise and be baptized? And wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we see from the Scripture... And we can look at many different examples in the New Testament, in the book of Acts especially, where individuals were baptized. Why? Because it's essential to salvation. We need to be baptized in order to be saved, in order to have our sins washed away. But there's another myth that kind of goes along with this one, and it's pray the sinner's prayer. My wife was going through an obituary. I guess we, we know we're getting old when we start looking, in the, looking up obituaries for people that we've known in the past. But she was looking at an obituary for someone that she knew a long time ago because she's seen some of their property up for sale. And in that obituary, it gave a reference for the sinner's prayer. What one needs to do in order to be saved. And that individual had called on the name of the Lord. And the verse that they used was Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 15. I believe they had 9 through 13. But let's, let's read those verses. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. And let's just see exactly what it says and what we need to do in order to be saved. Because you notice in the previous example, Saul was already praying. So why did he need to be baptized if that sinner's prayer worked? Well, listen to what it says beginning in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. For if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed... For there is no difference between the Jews and the Greek. 
For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall we call in, on Him in whom we have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. I want to include that verse. Because I want us to realize that when we take the gospel to the world, whoever you are, your feet are, are, are beautiful. Because you're taking the, the God-saving message to the world. But look at what that passage says there in verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see that phrase used also in another place, which is in Acts chapter 2. You might want to flip over there because we're going to read several verses from Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 2, we know that Peter on the day of Pentecost was quoting the prophet Joel. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now here on the day of Pentecost, we can see that the Holy Spirit had descended and, and they spoke in tongues and they were accused of being full of new wine. And that's where Peter stands up and says, Hey, uh, this is what Joel the prophet spoke about. This is what's taking place. This is the last days. And he quotes Joel the prophet from Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 when he quotes that verse. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what does that phrase mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that all I need to do is call Lord, Lord, and I'll be saved? Does that mean, Lord, come into my heart? I realize that I've sinned. I know that I'm, I'm separated from You. Come into my heart, Lord. Is that what that means? It must mean more than saying the Lord's name. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, and verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of My Father which is in heaven. And so Jesus is saying right here, just because you say, Lord, Lord, does not mean that you're going to be saved. You have to do the Father's will. You have to do what God's Word tells us that we are to do. Jesus asked an important question. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? What's that imply? That if we're going to call Him Lord, then we're going to do what He's told us to do. Now let's go back to see if we can see what calling on the name of the Lord, what it means, because it must mean more than just saying the words, Lord, Lord. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 21 beginning, let's read. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered to by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that we should be holden of it. What's Peter preaching? Let's stop right there. What's Peter preaching? 
He's preaching the Gospel of Christ. He's preaching the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus said to go into all the world and preach. The Gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And that's what He's preaching. He's telling them that Christ died and that He's been buried. We're going to talk about that in the next few verses. That His body seen no corruption and that He came forth out of the grave. Look at what verse 25 beginning says. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne." He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, and his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear, for David is not ascended into heaven, into the heavens. But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foals thy footstool. What's Peter telling us? Peter's not only quoting Joel the prophet and saying that what's taking place is what Joel was talking about and telling us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's teaching the gospel of Christ that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and arose victorious over the grave. But he's telling us that Jesus wasn't left in the tomb. That David wasn't talking about David. David was talking about Jesus. And when Jesus was in the tomb, he saw no corruption. His body didn't decay. He came forth out of that grave. And he's now at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reign. As he tells us in, in Matthew chapter 28, that all power has been given unto him in heaven and on earth. Jesus died. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the dead on the third day. And they were guilty of crucifying Christ. Crucifying the Son of God. That's what they were hearing. You've done this. You've caused Him to die on the cross. And then in verse 37 it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now they had just heard the words that they had crucified Christ. They crucified the Son of God. And what do they need to do? What are we going to do about it? How do we fix this? Well, didn't Peter already just say, Call on the name of the Lord? Isn't that what the Scripture said? Isn't that what Joel said was going to happen? That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? But what did Peter say? Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Why didn't He just say, accept Jesus into your heart? Why didn't He just say, call on His name to save you? Why didn't He say, pray this particular prayer? Say these special words. Why did He say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sin? Why did He tell tell them that? And in verse 39, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What did they do? They repented, they were baptized. For what? The remission of sin. Remember the words that Ananias said to Saul. Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Does all that fit together? I think the Scripture shows us that all of that is necessary in order to be saved. You can't be saved in your sin. You have to be saved when your sin's washed away. At what point are you saved? Before your sins are washed away or after? The Scripture shows us here that baptism is essential. But there's another clue that we can look at when we call on the name of the Lord. Over in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 9, we see the story there of Simon the sorcerer. And the Bible tells us that Philip was preaching, and Simon heard and he believed. Now let's begin at verse 9. And there was a certain man called Simon, which aforetime... In the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. But when they believed Philip's preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and that the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. And so they preached the Christ again. And when you preach Christ, you're going to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And they believed that message. They believed what Philip was teaching. And they were baptized. They believed it and they were baptized. Remember the words of Jesus, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what they're doing here. Preaching the gospel, people believe it, and they're baptized, and they're in a saved condition. But look at verse 13. And Simon himself believed also. And he was baptized, and he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. I want to stop right there. Because I hear people sometimes say that, well, guess what? If you're lost, if you go back into the world, then you were never saved to begin with. Well, here we see that Simon had obeyed the Gospel. He believed and he was baptized. Now the Scripture tells me that. And the Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And so I believe that God knew that Simon was was a believer and that he was baptized, so he was a Christian. 
So he's in that saved condition and now he's going to do something that's going to put that in jeopardy. Now, we'll go on, verse 13, we'll begin. Then Simon himself believed also, and when they, he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. And now when the apostles which were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he, had, he was fallen on none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Therefore, er, Verse 21, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Here we find someone that is involved with sin, wanting to purchase the Holy Ghost, and it's, his motive, his reason, is wicked. He's sinful. He's committed sin. And Dave, or Peter calls him out on it and points that out to him. Now what's he going to do? Well, Peter says pray. Well, why would Peter say pray here as opposed to over in Acts chapter 2 say repent and be baptized? Because in Acts chapter 2, they were not Christians. In Acts chapter 8, Simon is a Christian. He is a child of God. He's in that relationship with God, but that sin has put him in a condition where that, that relationship has a problem. And Simon needs to take care of it. And so Peter tells him to repent and pray. Asking God's forgiveness. There we have an example where as Christians we can pray. We have other passages of the Scripture. I don't have time this morning to get into those. But we realize that as a Christian, our relationship is different from someone that's out there in the world who's not a child of God. And so when we look at Acts chapter 2 and we see that they were baptized, they went down into the water and they come up out of the water. Just like we see... With Jesus, when John baptized him, and just like we see with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, where they both went down in the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he came up out of that water and he went on his way rejoicing. If you're not a child of God today, if you're not a Christian, if you've not done what the Bible teaches that you need to do for the reason that the Bible says that you need to do it, then you need to get your relationship right with God and be buried with our Lord in baptism. You're not going to find in the New Testament where they poured water over somebody's head or sprinkled water on their head, baptized them as a baby. That's another myth. The Bible doesn't say that in the New Testament that we're to do those kind of things. Many of the in the denominational world teach that baptism is not essential, that you're saved before you're baptized. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
There's no example of people praying a sinner's prayer in order to be saved. As a Christian, we have the privilege of being able to go to our Father in heaven that when we sin and we repent, we can ask Him to forgive us. But we don't see that in the for the alien sinner, the person who is not a child of God. Another myth that people sometimes want to believe is that you cannot fall from grace. Grace is something that's very important. In fact, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us, For the grace of God to bring us salvation hath appeared to all men. God's goodness in allowing people to have the knowledge of being becoming a Christian or knowing what they need to do in order to be saved, that's available to everyone. We do have a responsibility ourselves as Christians to help take that message out into the world. But that grace is something that is very important. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. You think about where would we be today without God's grace. Without that message that Jesus came to this earth and died for our sins, was buried and rose victorious over the grave, so that you and I could have the forgiveness of sin. Without that knowledge, where would we be? Without that plan that God has given, where would we be? We would be lost in our sin. So that grace is something that's important. But in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. That gospel message for the churches of Galatia, they had a problem where people were coming in saying, you need to follow certain portions of the law. You need to incorporate that into this new doctrine into this New Testament that Jesus has given us. And Paul is saying if you do that, if you add to it, or you even take away from it, then you've fallen from the grace of God. You've fallen from grace. And so it's important that we don't add to God's Word or take away from God's Word. Because you see, we can be lost. What did Peter say to Simon? Verse 21 Acts chapter 8. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What did he just say to Simon? Brother, you're a good Christian. No, he didn't say that. He's saying you're in pro- you got a problem with your relationship with God. Now I ask you, if Simon had not repented and he continued on with that mindset, then I want to I want to purchase this this so that I I can use it to impress people or to do whatever his motive was. If he had not have repented of that, would he have been in a safe condition with God?
You're going to argue that, well, he never was a Christian, so he wasn't saved ever to begin with. Because I know the Scriptures, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, guess what? That's a very true passage of Scripture that Paul gave us in Romans. But something can separate us from God. Our sin. And Simon's soul was in jeopardy here. Let's go a little further. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that have done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I bear for. I verily be absent in body, but present in the Spirit, have judged already as though I have were present concerning Him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and My Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What if this man continued in that relationship. Because you see, there's other passages of Scripture in Galatians and also in 1 Corinthians that give us a list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if a Christian goes out and commits adultery like this individual is doing, has he fallen from God's grace? Is God still going to save him? Is God's grace going to just cover that sin? Why did Paul say deliver him to, to Satan so that he can straighten out? So that he can be saved? If he wasn't in a lost condition to begin with. Think about it. We can fall from grace. If this man had not repented, he would be in a lost state. And if he continued in his sin, he would be in a lost condition. And God's grace would not cover that sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 beginning, it says, And what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, I know that sometimes we sin, and that's one of the things that we struggle with, is that occasionally we may sin, we may do something. The Bible tells us that if we say we have no sin, uh, the truth is not in us. We make God a liar. And so we need to understand that, yeah, we're going to sin. And so does that mean that I'm in and out, in and out, in and out? No, if we're walking in the light as He is in the light, we're not living in sin. That's not our way of life. That's not our manner of life. We don't get up and sin and continue to sin and sin and sin and sin. Doing the same thing over and over like this individual that we're studying here on uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This was a daily situation that he was involved with. Because I believe what the Bible teaches, uh, teaches in 1 John chapter 1, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. But grace doesn't allow us to just go out and live it up in sin, so to speak. Because we can fall from grace. 
In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, For if after you have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered unto them. What's that picture talking about? What's Peter talking about there? Is he talking about someone that's been obedient to the gospel? Someone that's a Christian and then going back into the world? And he goes on to talk about <clears throat> it's worse than a dog returning to his, to his vomit or the sow that's been washed or wallowing in the mire. That's the situation that that individual's in. And so it's important that we realize that God loves us. His grace is important. Where would we be without the grace of God? But that is not a license to go out and live in sin. We're supposed to be dead to sin. We're not looking for ways to sin. And then there's another myth that everyone's going to heaven. And that myth seems to be growing more and more if you listen to some of the surveys that are given. And listen to what some people have to say. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, "...enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction." And many there be which go in thereat. <clears throat> because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather th- grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewed down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's kind of a sad passage of Scripture when you look at it that there's only a few that's going to be saved. Because it's easy to travel a smooth and easy road. But sometimes living that Christian life, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be difficulties that we face. And sometimes we have to maneuver to, to walk that path. To travel that road. And sometimes the road may get rough as a Christian. There may be persecutions. There may be lots of obstacles, temptations and trials that we face that make us tempted to get back over onto the smooth road. But we know that that road leads to destruction. And we don't want to be on that road. But there's a lot of people that think they're on the right road and Jesus is saying, guess what? They're not. We've got to do God's will. Jesus tells us what we need to do in order to be saved. And that's one of the things that's important in traveling that road because you can't get on that straight and narrow without being obedient to the Gospel of Christ by doing what God says, Jesus says, that we have to do in order to be saved. So yeah, I can think of relatives, I can think of friends, I can think of neighbors, I can think of a lot of people that are lost. And I can think of people that were very close to me that are lost. But I don't ever want to see them again 
if they're not in heaven, I want to go to heaven. And that's what needs to be our goal, that we love our Lord more than anybody or anything in this world. We love Him enough that whatever that road says that we have to travel over, whatever we have to go through, we're willing to go through it because we want heaven to be our home. The last myth is quite simple. I get to it. And that is that we have plenty of time. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 16, He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much good laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth not or layeth up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. <clears throat> I think when we look at our world today, we can certainly understand that we have no promise of tomorrow. It amazes me that one person can cause so much havoc in our world today. And it doesn't always have to be on the other side of the world. It can, it can come home too. But it just shows us how fragile life is. That we have no promise of tomorrow. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 14, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. You see, our life is fragile. We can be here today and gone tomorrow. We see the tragedies that our world has in it every single day. You can't turn on the news without somebody being murdered, killed in some crazy way. And you say, well, I'm not in New York and I'm not in one of those big cities, so I don't really have to worry about it. Well, when you think about our health, you know, you get up one day, you're well, and you get up the next day and you can find out you're not so well. I wonder how many people today woke up this morning and are not going to finish the day because their life's going to come to an end. It could be me, it could be you, it could be some, somebody out there. But we know that there's going to be hundreds and thousands of people that aren't going to go to bed tonight who got up this morning. So it's not very wise to say, I'm going to put it off. Yeah, I want to obey God. I want to become a Christian. I want to do it someday. But I think I have plenty of time. That was the purpose of the parable that Jesus gave. That yeah, we may have things planned and we may have a great schedule for our life, but we don't know what's going to happen in the very next minute. 
So if you're not a Christian, don't put it off any longer. Become a Christian today. We have clothes, we have water, we have everything that's needed so that we can bury you in baptism to, so that you can walk, rise up to walk in newness of life. And then you're on that straight and narrow road. The, 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 the path that's difficult because the other path is easy. But Jesus will help us in our traveling on that road because He tells us that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's there to help us because He wants us to be saved. So you see, there's many myths that are out there, even, even Bible myths. But I want you to think about the Bereans because Paul tells us that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what they were hearing was true. Your soul is so important that you should not trust what someone says. You should look at what the Bible says so that you can be saved. Check what I'm saying. That's why I wanted you to follow along this morning. See what the Bible says. Man has all kinds of opinions, all kinds of feelings. But what really matters is the Word of God. The Word of God can sanctify us. And it's truth. And the truth shall make us free if we'll accept it. This morning, if you're not a Christian, we've already shown what they did in the New Testament in order to become a Christian. We showed Paul what he had to do. Saul at the time, that was his name at that point. Showed what he did. You can do the same thing today. We mentioned the Ethiopian eunuch. You can do exactly what he did. Go down that water grave of baptism. Rise up to walk in newness of life. And go on your way rejoicing. But if you're a Christian, maybe you're in a situation like Simon where you need to pray and ask God's forgiveness. And from that example, we see that we can pray with you and for you. And so we're here to do that this morning. So if you need to make your relationship right with God, then we would encourage you to do that today. You have that opportunity while we stand and sing.